Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 5-9, and so it begins. What were the racial implications of Jesus going to Galilee? Are we called to be successful or useful? And what's the difference between preaching and teaching? Answers to these questions and more as we continue our study of Matthew chapter 4. Hi everyone, good to be together again on, again on this series we're doing on the Gospel of Matthew. Hey, if you didn't get a chance to see last week where Tim and I interviewed Cherith Nordling, it was terrific and I encourage you to check that out on YouTube. We were talking with her about the, the uh, introduction, really, the first three and a half chapters of Matthew. Um, up until this point, Matthew's laid a very carefully, well-thought-out uh, introduction it's sort of like the Old Testament Genesis. Uh, the first 11 chapters are like the introduction to the story, which begins with Abraham. So now the action really, uh, really begins. Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, there's an atmosphere of excitement. Uh, there's a revival movement that God has brought about uh, through John the Baptist. And now we're getting ready for the, the messianic mission of Jesus to be launched. From, from this point on, all the way through chapter 16, uh, the action happens entirely in Galilee in the north, and we'll talk about why that's important in a minute. But Matthew organizes this northern section as follows, where we're going to start today. Chapter 4, verse 12 uh, through 17 is Jesus' initial call to repentance and announcing the kingdom, and then... Um, the calling of the first disciples, and then where we'll start next week, the uh, the greatest collection of his teaching in the New Testament, which is the Sermon on the Mount, and 5 to 7, and then in chapters 8 and 9, uh, it'll be the healing uh, activity, the actions of Jesus that reveal his authority, and then chapter 10 is the mission of the gospel. So that's just to keep in mind as a as a as the structure for the next several weeks. I've told you before that Matthew has often been called the most ethical of the four Gospels. He continually in this Gospel calls us up to living out what Jesus said and did. This this section carries with it great excitement, but also great cost. You know, the crowds followed him, uh, but in the midst of the miracles and the healings and all that excitement, Jesus points the disciples, and in fact, points all the listeners back again and again to uh, what Bonhoeffer called the cost of discipleship. Um, in Matthew 8, for example, right in the midst of all these healings and miracles, it's incredible stuff that's going on. And one of the scribes comes and says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, oh, really? <laughs> the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He, he follows this a couple more times in the following chapters where he says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, whoever loses it for my sake. So this is, this is the atmosphere that we now move into as Jesus' ministry actually begins. So we'll start at, at chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth 
and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And then verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So this section begins with, now when Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. There's a few things that I want to point out. First of all, Galilee would be the last place you'd go if you wanted to have a good launching to your ministry. It was it was out in the sticks. Uh, you, if you want to do that, you should be in Jerusalem or at least Judea, the area around Jerusalem. This seems to be the opposite of good strategy. What he's doing is beginning with very low profile. And I think this connects with what we looked at two weeks ago in the temptation uh, in the desert, which was this temptation for drawing attention that the enemy tried to put before him for self-aggrandizement. What he's doing is the antithesis of self-promotion. Now, the other thing I notice is by waiting until John's ministry was completed because he'd been thrown in prison by Herod, there's a suggestion of of the patience of true meekness and humility. Next week, as we begin to look at the Beatitudes, we'll see that that meekness and humility are, are walked out in the context of patience. Jesus refused to be in competition with anyone, including John the Baptist. Um, in John's account, uh, the Gospel of John, this is made even more explicit. In, in John 4, 1 to 3, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself did not baptize them, his disciples did. Therefore, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. There's another reason why he left. He was not seeking conflict or trouble. He wasn't afraid of it, but he did not seek it out. One of the early church fathers we've looked at several times in this series, John Chrysostom, said this, It is not a matter of reproach that one does not intentionally put oneself in danger. Yet one must stand nobly when uh, uh, one inadvertently falls into danger. At Impact Nations, we often are working below the radar. There's a lot of stuff. If you've not looked at our website, impactnations.com, you can see activities going on all over the world, wonderful things, lives being rescued, communities being transformed. But you may be surprised to know that it's not all up there because we don't want to, we don't want to look for conflict with, with government authorities or create problems for our Uh, some of our um, partners. In some parts of the world, it's fine, but some parts we stay below the radar. That's what Jesus was doing here when he went all the way up to Galilee. He, He physically moved away from the potential for conflict. 
And the other thing to consider here, and John points this out in his gospel a lot, that Jesus only did those things he saw the Father doing. He only said what the Father gave him to say. He wasn't looking for confrontation, and uh, this was not the right time for that, and, and so he wouldn't be go anywhere near it. I think we have been in a season, especially this last year, where where this is an important lesson for the church in North America, not to seek conflict, not to seek our rights. Uh, certainly, the the temptation that we looked at last week, the Beatitudes that we're about to look at, show us that, that following Jesus is the antithesis of, of trying to demand our rights. And I think this includes the church. So, there are some real implications for Jesus going to Galilee, leaving Judea and going up north. And I talked about this uh, when we laid a foundation, which is now seven, eight weeks ago. So let me really quickly review. Uh, to better understand what's going on in this gospel, we need to understand the geography and the culture of Galilee versus Jerusalem. They're very different. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, racially, uh, Galilee was racially mixed. Geographically, it was separated from Judea, not just by distance, but by in between Samaria and uh, to the east, the Decapolis. Uh, politically, this is really interesting that um, whereas, of course, uh, Judea was under direct Roman rule, Galilee was not. For a thousand years, it had been under a separate administration. For him to go to Galilee, there was a huge difference culturally. You know, Galileans, they lacked the, the sophistication and, uh, of, of life in Jerusalem. They were more open to non-Jewish influences. And, and connected with that, the Judeans thought that the Galileans were really lax in their following and understanding of, of Torah, of the ritual law. And, uh, you know, this was made worse by the distance. So all of these reasons make it very counterintuitive for Jesus to launch his ministry in Galilee. But he wasn't interested in good strategy. He was simply following the Father. Verse 13, he left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. We see again and again in Matthew, more than any of the other Gospels, he references Old Testament prophecies and scriptures to link to one of his one of his two central themes is that Jesus is Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets and promises. And the second one we'll look at a little more later, but it's, it's about discipleship. So Jesus moved from a remote village. Nazareth back then was very small, remote village. It was, by the way, about 50 miles away. It was probably a three-day walk uh, to Galilee, to the lakeside town of Capernaum, which had was very uh, for its day, very large, about 10,000 people. It was a fishing commercial center. And it was surrounded uh, by, by a bunch of other towns. And this area is where we're going to see most of Jesus' Galilean ministry uh, taking place. By the way, you see in, the, in this prophecy from Isaiah, it says, Galilee of the nations. 
what that's really meaning is that that Galilee was referring to its openness to the surrounding Gentile populations. There were there were Gentile, there were Hellenistic towns, all in mixing in with the people uh, of Capernaum and the towns around them. So Isaiah here, when he says, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, verse 16, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who have sat in the region uh, and the shadow of death, for those who've sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. So, Nazareth was part of Zebulun, Naphtali was on the left side, the west side and north of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' move to Galilee demonstrates God's initiative toward those who others had ignored and never considered. Remember, we looked at this early on in the in the chapter one in the genealogy. Those four women who were complete outsiders, and yet they are highlighted in in the Messiah's genealogy. The three magi. So this is the same theme that that Matthew won't let us forget all the way through this gospel. You know, Galilee was a despised people, and and prophetically here, the people who live in great darkness, meaning they were without the religious advantages of, uh, of Jerusalem and Judea. And yet it was here that the light dawned. The messianic light dawns in the darkest places, I think, is part of what Matthew is trying to point out. Remember, Jesus said, we'll see this in chapter 9, but famously he said to the religious people, I didn't come for the people who think they're righteous. I came for those who know they're sinners. Now, it's also interesting in the quote, if you look carefully at at what Matthew writes, he changes a, a word or two from Isaiah. He says they're sitting in darkness. Isaiah's prophetic word was they're standing in darkness. I think this this stands out to me. This is highlighted. Sitting is even more passive, perhaps more despondent, more hopeless, more stuck. Do you know why Galilee was mixed? Because um, in the 8th century AD, uh, BC, that's a long time before this. The Assyrians had come in, had invaded. They, they ruled by sheer terror. Uh, they took people and scattered them all over their empire. They took people from other places in the empire and forced them to relocate there. That's why there is the, the cultural and religious mixture there. But also, it's like in their DNA, this sense of being defeated and broken. Now, this is the very same region, the people who dwell in darkness, that is flooded by the light of the Savior. While I was reading this, I just thought again of Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2, and we probably many of us know it. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Think if you were in Galilee, if you had that that you know, centuries and centuries of of a history of being oppressed. For the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for darkness 
shall cover the earth, thick darkness upon the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear over you. And now we come to verse 17, one of the most important verses we're going to cover today. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, I'd like you to notice that in Mark's uh, account, Mark 1.15, he says the kingdom of heaven is here, therefore repent and believe. But for Matthew, <clears throat> repentance comes first. There's, a, there's an invitation, but it must be responded to. You must repent in order to receive the kingdom. Whereas for Mark, he's saying the kingdom breaks in regardless and and it calls for a response of repentance. So you see, there's a theological difference here, or at least a difference of emphasis between these two gospel writers. Matthew is stressing our uh, human responsibility in salvation. Salvation is the initiative of God. We, we've seen it already through the first four chapters. But, but there's a mutuality, there's a responsibility for us to respond, and this is going to continue through the gospel. Let me just say to you, this verse, if you're somebody who marks up your Bible, put a star beside this verse, it is the gateway to the rest of Jesus' teaching and ministry throughout all of this gospel. Matthew is deliberate in the placement of this verse. It, it's the core of Jesus' essential Message. It's like this verse is the launching pad for everything that's going to come now. And he says first, repent. Repentance is the prerequisite for what's about to come, the Sermon on the Mount. Repentance is the only way that we can ever live in the blessing of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the word Repentance is metanoia, as many of you know, and it can be translated as turn your lives around, change your hearts, change your minds, change your lives. The emphasis is on turning from our preoccupation. Folks, we can't be passive. Today we're going to be challenged through this whole passage because Jesus challenged in Matthew so strongly. We can't be passive. We've got to turn from our preoccupations, from our stuff, from our our possessions, from our plans, and our sin, we've got to turn toward God. In the following verses, Matthew shows us what repentance looks like, and we're going to see it in a minute when he calls the fishermen. Jesus' proclamation comes with a supernatural enabling power. When people hear it and they receive it, there's something empowering. His word changes people. His word changes situations. It transforms whatever it touches as long as it is received. Remember the parable of the sower. The seed went out everywhere, but some it was hard ground. They never even received it, and they didn't get any benefit. Repentance is our response to gospel. And then he says, uh, because the kingdom has come near. You'll see this translated so many different ways in your Bibles. It's because it's a really difficult uh, 
way a word to translate exactly into English, but but in essence it means has come near, is at hand, is near. It means God's kingdom is coming. It, it, it's breaking through now. Um, both a future of a, a culmination of the kingdom will be coming, but there's a present reality that is broken in right now. One translation says, here comes the kingdom. I like that. The kingdom is not just my private communion with God. It's not just let your kingdom come in my heart. It includes that. But especially for Matthew, more than any of the gospel writers, the kingdom is a spatial societal reality. Then he says, the kingdom of heaven is come. And I'm going to try to go quickly to review this. If you want to go all the way back to uh, episode two of this series, 5-2, you'll see where I've developed it more fully. But we have got to understand the kingdom if we're going to understand Matthew's gospel. It is, the kingdom is the most overarching theme in this gospel. Matthew talks about it 36 times. Jesus came announcing the kingdom. He explained the kingdom in his parables, in his teaching. His his miracles bore witness to the presence and reality of the kingdom. More than any other theme, the, the context, the key for understanding Matthew is the kingdom of the heavens which is the literal when we read the kingdom of heaven. And uh, that context, frankly, is much, much larger than most modern readers believe. That's why we often say at Impact Nations, how big is your gospel? It's really big. And Matthew insists all the way through this gospel that Jesus is the king who fulfills Israel's story and purpose. In Matthew 4.17, Jesus begins with the declaration. He is announcing the inauguration of the long-awaited kingdom of heaven, that it's come, it's coming, it's continuing to advance and increase. He'll talk about that in chapter 11. And yet it will be fully realized in the future at his second coming. Another aspect of this kingdom is it's upside down. It's radical uh, in in its nature. It is socially radical. It is economically radical. Uh, it's a whole new order. It brings good news to the poor. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. It is nonviolent. You must lose your life in order to find it. The demands of the kingdom. First, we've got to decide uh, to enter the kingdom on its own terms really on Christ's terms. We need to accept the demands of the kingdom. Matthew 7, Jesus said this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the road is easy that leads to destruction. There's many who take it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Matthew's gospel, we're going to see it week by week, insists that new birth must lead to new behavior. And another aspect of the kingdom that's going to come up here and there throughout is spiritual warfare. We saw an initial example of spiritual warfare when when all the infants two and under were killed. We saw it again in the temptation of Christ. 
But the, the, the coming of the kingdom, the mission of Jesus, constituted the initial defeat of Satan's power, that, that he is decreasing, the kingdom is increasing, darkness is retreating, light is advancing. With the coming of the kingdom, Satan is being bound. The mission of the kingdom is to bind the works of Satan. That's why when we take people out, when we teach, when we equip people, I say, and every time when you pray thy kingdom come and someone is healed, then the darkness has retreated and the kingdom has advanced. I uh, I have always enjoyed Matthew 12. There's a parallel verse in Luke. It says, but if, the, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. For Matthew, probably more than any of the four gospel writers, the kingdom is not something that we believe in. It is something that is lived out. And that, folks, is very countercultural to our time. Let's move on. The calling of the first disciples, starting at verse 18. For as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men, or I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And he went from there and saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat with their father, Zebedee, and uh, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, this is pretty interesting. You need to kind of look at the whole context of all four Gospels to, to get an accurate picture of this scene. But isn't it interesting that Jesus' first recorded action public action was to gather a group of committed followers. Discipleship is major theme for Matthew and throughout this gospel. And you know what? From now on in Matthew's gospel, we're not reading about Jesus in isolation. He's always with the disciples. In fact, the first time that he's alone in this gospel is when Jesus is at the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't that interesting? It's not accidental, folks. <clears throat> Pardon me. The task is not primarily learning from a teacher when he says, come follow me. But the task is active fishing. Matthew's gospel is very active because discipleship is active. It's not theoretical. It's not learning a bunch of principles. It's not taking a bunch of classes. It's active. Secondly here, when we read all four Gospels, we see that Peter, Andrew, James, and John already knew Jesus. The key to the, the records in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, and Luke is John. John gives us another picture. When Jesus, at the time of his baptism, when he's down in Judea, and uh, in John, we see that that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Andrew immediately believed him, and he runs and he gets his brother. We found the Messiah. Peter and Andrew both went to Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He immediately changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter or Rock. 
This was before Jesus went up to live in Galilee. Then after Jesus moved to Capernaum, in the passage we're looking at, then he called these brothers to intensify their discipleship with them, and they did. Matthew passed over this backstory, but it wasn't because he didn't know it. Of course he knew it. But it was because it didn't fit his overall purpose. Again, all gospel writers are being very selective in what they present. Uh, John 21 says, I suppose the whole world couldn't contain the books if we put everything in. So what he was doing was his purpose was writing not only to declare and reveal Jesus as Messiah, but to teach the church, you'll remember that was most likely the church in Antioch that he was from, to teach them what it means to be a disciple. And now we come to one of my favorite things to talk about, which is what it means to follow Jesus. John 12, 26, Jesus said this, If anyone wants to be my disciple, and we all say, yeah, I want to be a disciple, and that's good. He says, then A, you must follow me, and B, you must be where I am. And Jesus was always on the move. Now, I want you to note several things. We're going to take a few minutes on following Jesus because it's it's critical. It's the watershed between theory and reality, the word becoming flesh. First thing I want you to notice is they're at their boats, at their nets, and it's Jesus who takes the initiative. What makes them disciples is not any potential they had. What makes them disciples is the power of the call on their life. The power of Jesus' initiative must be responded to. So where the power comes from is his initiative and their choice to immediately respond. We, we looked at the narrow gate a moment ago from chapter 7. The narrow gate, folks, does not begin with more learning, more contemplation. The narrow gate begins, this is why Matthew put it in here, it begins with obedience. Second thing I want you to notice is the nature of this call. It was a call to participate in God's great eternal cosmic purpose. The the rescuing, the reconciliation, the restoration of all creation. Paul says in Romans 8, 19 to 22, that all of creation is groaning, waiting for this to happen. And this call is for us to enter into this movement of God. So, This call of restoration, of rescue, is at the core of God's work. Therefore, it must be at the core of a disciple's work. Thirdly, Jesus, when he calls them, he says, there's a job to do. I am going to teach you how to fish for people. This is a call to effectiveness. Effectiveness. And the power of the call, when we respond to it, always leads to effective lives, effective according to his purpose. Remember, his, his, his view, his perspective is beyond time and space. It is cosmic. Ours is very, very limited. 
So here is a countercultural truth, and it is, I'm sorry to say, countercultural in the world and countercultural in too much of the church. The countercultural truth is this God calls disciples to a useful life, not a successful life. I'm sorry to say that won't preach in a lot of churches, but it is the gospel. He calls us to a useful life by his purposes and standards, not a successful life by our standards. Successism is the great enemy of the gospel. I tell you this from 40 years of pastoring, of watching in my own life, of watching in people that I I love dearly, and watching those parts of my church. I'm telling you, successism is the great enemy of the gospel. And it is a distortion of what Jesus both taught and called disciples into. The great reformer Martin Luther called the honoring of the successful the greatest religion on earth. You see, true usefulness is a call to significance. Deep down, significance is when your life and my life make a difference beyond ourselves. So Jesus says, come follow me, there's a job to do. As I point out to people sometimes, it is fascinating that he calls out to these guys and he doesn't say, come follow me, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, heal your hearts. Come follow me and, and, and I'm going to remove all the pain in your life or all the obstacles. He didn't say, come follow me and I'll lead you closely to the Father. It wasn't even a call to their own salvation. It's not a call to the prayer room, though he's going to teach them how to pray. He, it's not a call to intimacy with the Father, but as they walk with him, they will find that intimacy to the Father. And it's certainly not an altar call, but he will assure them of their place with him in eternity. So I want to say this again. This call to follow him is a call to learn effectiveness in God's purpose. And when we get the call, it comes with a responsibility. You know, revelation always comes with responsibility, always. If he shows you something, you become responsible for what he showed you. And, and it calls for a specific, not a, not a theological or a theoretical choice. And immediately they followed. That word just jumps at me. Immediately they followed. Let me just give you a, a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One of his most famous books is uh, The Cost of Discipleship. But he said this, the call to follow at once produces a new situation. Yes, it does. We've got a choice, don't we? To stay in the old situation makes discipleship impossible. As long as Levi sits at the uh, custom booth and Peter at his nets, they could pursue their trade honestly and dutifully. And they might both enjoy religious experiences. But if they want to believe in God, the only way is to follow the incarnate Son. Folks, this is critical. This is what moves us from theory to real discipleship. One of the things I sometimes say, and and I can be misunderstood in this, but 
We love the idea of following Jesus. It's like it's like it's romantic. But you know what? Before you can follow somewhere, you have to leave somewhere. Before you can truly follow somewhere, you have to leave somewhere. Now, now, following is not always a physical move, for sure. But, but it will always take us out of our place of comfort and confidence and competence. I think it's a great watershed. You know, years and years ago, as a, as a young father responsible for this young family and having a, having a good job, that, that, that's a whole other story. The Lord just gave it to me. And then he says to me, in the midst of everything going great, come follow me. I want you to move to this other town. It was nearly 500 miles away. And I, there was no job. There was no nothing. He says, but I want you to go. And I had a choice. A few years later, I was, I was engaged in, in leading Christian schools. My life was good. I had a house, a station wagon, <laughs> you know, the whole deal with my four kids. And he says to me, come follow me. And I had to move 3,000 miles and go to where I, I had no living. I had no nothing. But he says, I want you to go. I'm going to teach you how to plant churches. Well, you know, God was so good to us, and we were able to plant a number of churches, and it was great. But at the moment, it was, come follow me. And it was selling the house, selling the car, selling the furniture, going and starting again without a job and having to find one, and that was quite a stretch. And then in the midst of of incredible, almost historic blessing, as the Spirit of God was being poured out where we were in Ontario— and we were planning churches, and, and it was amazing. I thought, this is what I'm going to do. And then he says, come follow me. Just shocked me. Every time, by the way, I wasn't thinking about, oh, maybe it's time for me to. He just shocked me. And, uh, and we packed up everything again. And we sold our house at a loss. Always seemed to be at a loss. And, uh, and we moved 3,000 miles back west, and we started again. And in the midst of that, and and we were doing ministry and doing all kinds of things, and then only eight years ago, he said, come follow me. And uh, it was to come down to America, to where we live now, Albuquerque. And I I mean, I was 60, and it was complicated. It's not easy. Uh, It's become harder and harder to make that move with all the government paperwork and everything. And I remember talking to Christina and saying, you know, we, we followed him all this way, but I don't know, if, do we need to do this? I mean, what we're, life's good here. We've got good ministry. We've got good friends. Do we need to do it? And, and as we prayed and talked, we said, we've always followed the cloud. And we know God would love us and be pleased with us if we just stopped here. But we don't want to stop short of, of following him right to the end. Now, I don't know if this is the end, but it's the end so far. I told you that, that rather personal story to say that in my case, following has been physically moving. And every time it has been remarkable adventure. And every time I look back, I go, oh my word, if we hadn't followed, we would have been contained. And uh, the, the purposes of God wouldn't have been released. Folks, I believe that we are formed through following. 
and really in one sense were formed through leaving. Whether, whether it's physically leaving or, as I say, whether it's, it's leaving our places of comfort and confidence and competence. As an aside, I think more of us are called than, than we realize to physically leave. But regardless, following is you can't go somewhere till you leave somewhere. Again, Bonhoeffer, he said the disciple is dragged out of his relative security into a life of absolute insecurity. Amen. (laughs) From a life which is observable and calculable into a life where everything is unobservable and fortuitous, out of the realm of the finite into the realm of infinite possibilities. One of the early church fathers, St. Gregory the Great, reminds us that the kingdom has, as he says, no price tag on it. It is worth as much as you have. Uh, For Zacchaeus, uh, it was worth half of all his possessions and the rest he used to pay back what was stolen. For the widow, it was the two copper coins. For Peter and Andrew, it was worth the nets and the vessels that they left behind. Another point to this following he calls us in the middle of what we're doing. I've always loved the parable in Matthew 20, the parable of the landowner. Remember the, the 11th hour workers and so forth. But, but this theme comes all the way through the story. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Jesus said that's what the kingdom's like. It is God hiring, God initiating, God saying, come follow me. And you know it's it's amazing for us in the West that that this invitation required an immediate choice. It says we see again and again, and they responded immediately. But in doing it, they learned how to change the world. Uh, th- those words "follow me" have the power to, to to tear us from what has been most precious to us. I just want to say, My testimony would be, and the gospel of Matthew's testimony would be, responding concretely to his invitation to follow him is the surest way to break the power of a comfortable life and to break the fear of economic insecurity. And over the joy of his discovery, he sold everything and bought that treasure in the field. And by the way, the language when he says, follow me, um, isn't a one-time event. It's in the present tense imperative. What it means is keep following me. Keep following me. The essence of following is movement. It, it, it's not just an attitude. It's a life. Because you see, his invitation ultimately is always missional because God's great purpose is missional, isn't it? Well, I need to... Beware of the time. The last section here, verses 23 to 25, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics. He cured them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond Jordan, the Jordan. Even though he went all that way, 70 miles north, 
The word got out and they followed him. Now his ministry is fully launched. And isn't it interesting that the, 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 the setting, the context for Matthew's presentation is the great enthusiasm of the crowds throughout his entire Galilean ministry. The, uh, the teaching, the proclamation of the kingdom and healing make up the bulk of what Jesus' ministry was in Galilee. Um, it's interesting, too, if you look at verse 23, it is repeated almost word for word in chapter 9, 35. Why am I telling you this? It's all about structure, how he puts this together. 4.23 and 9.35 are like bookends that bracket the gospel into units. Remember, there were no chapters back then. And uh, so from here through chapter 9, Matthew presents Jesus as uh, the Messiah, as the word, and, and Messiah as the deed. And so here we get a wonderful portrait of Jesus just bear with me a few more minutes. I want to say this. There's four words that stand out, or four words or phrases that stand out in this passage. Number one, Jesus went around uh, itinerant ministry. Uh, what he was doing, he's honoring outreach and evangelism and mission. Jesus was proactive. The shepherd goes to the lost sheep. The shepherd doesn't say, here we are, uh, everyone welcome, come see us. The shepherd goes out to the sheep. Secondly, he was teaching in their synagogues. This honors the ministry that takes place in the church. Teaching is usually uh, instruction in God's will. Sermon on the Mount is a classic example. And preaching, the proclamation uh, the authoritative announcement is what that word means. So what's the difference between preaching and teaching? I've been asked this on and off for decades. Preaching focuses on God's activity. It's about his divine work. You know, pre-COVID and I trust post-COVID, one of the great delights of my life is going to really remote areas in the world and preaching. What is it? I'm telling them about God's activity. This is what he's doing. Teaching, however, focuses on our ethical responsibility. In light of God's activity, preaching, teaching focuses on what this means for us, how we respond ethically. And then the fourth word, of course, is healing. And uh, do you know something that I've learned long ago? The sick are often so overwhelmed by their infirmity. Sometimes it's gone on for years and years, uh, but it's like they can't see beyond their sickness or their pain to hear the gospel. And so that's why they need to get set free of what is, uh, what's making them sick, what, what the infirmity is. And this is why healing is such a vital part of how we present the gospel. It's got to be demonstrated. Let me just tell you a little story. I've got two wonderful friends who went off uh, to Egypt about, oh, I don't know, two weeks ago, 10 days ago. And they went to an area, and, and at this point, Egypt is, is not at all uh, friendly to Christianity and the church. But they went to an area where there was an awful lot of poor, and they went, just these two men, dear friends of mine, and they went and uh, gave food away, and then he wrote me on Monday. I said, how did it go? 
And you know, they saw 350 people healed. There were 800 families fed. And in response to seeing the healing, to seeing the gospel demonstrated, 160 of them came to Christ. So wrapping this up, so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought all the sick. So he went out to regions, so it's like salvation was in the macro, but he healed every individual, one of them, it's in the micro. The great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Healing is powerful, folks, in gathering people. Um, my son was asked just earlier today, What's what's so important about healing? What's the big deal about healing? Healing, it, it, it is so powerful. Not only it, it, it opens people up to hear the gospel, it sets them free to hear the gospel. And healing was central to Jesus' message that the kingdom had now broken in. We were in the most gospel-hardened area of all of uh, India. I've been to India 25 times. And up in the Punjab, it was so hard. We knew it would be so hard. We were in for the long haul. Us and our Indian partners all agreed this is going to be a long, hard battle, but we've got to do it. And on the very first day of a medical clinic, it, where there was not much response, few people coming in, a family brought in on a bed their sick paralyzed mother. She couldn't walk. Somebody prayed for her. It wasn't me. Somebody on the team. She got up. She was completely healed. And folks, within minutes, the people started to stream to us, and we were overwhelmed for 12 days. I have pictures of standing and trying to preach to people to a crowd, and they'd be like one foot away from me and standing on the walls. And the net result of that from that one trip, our partner estimates 80,000 people are now being discipled. So we've got to hold on to healing, folks. We can't let go of it. We can't get discouraged. We can't get distracted. So Matthew's Jesus calls us to make clear and concrete choices. He disturbs us uh, with both the promises and the demands of the kingdom. To be committed to what Jesus said and see what he does will make no room in my life for a safe or theoretical faith. We're about to move into the greatest collection of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount. I will be con uh, repeatedly confronted with this issue, this question. I believe in Jesus. Do I believe in what he says enough to let his words change my life? Well, God bless you. Please stick with us uh, in the next minute or so. Tim and I are going to jump into a discussion on, on all of this stuff. God bless you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. You've given me uh, 
Lots to think about. I've got. I have too many questions, so now I have to ponder which ones to ask. I have one question. You have one question. What Would is you it? hand me that glass of water? I will, I will do it. Thank just you. this once. Now I will answer your questions. <laughs> um, hey, folks! Just before we get into our question period, I just I did want to remind people of our current uh, from Survive to Thrive campaign. You've heard us talking about it here in recent yeah. weeks. We are looking to raise twenty thousand dollars, which are being matched, uh, and those twenty thousand dollars double up to forty thousand dollars if we can reach that goal uh, are going directly towards helping the remnant generation, our partners in Kampala, Uganda, to rescue pregnant teens who have suffered horrific abuse, uh, defilement, uh, homelessness in a lot of cases, rescuing them from these terrible situations, but then getting them the medical care they need uh, for their pregnancy. It uh, costs $450 to, to get a girl through all of the medical costs related. Yeah. Um, so uh, head to impactnations.com slash thrive. Check that out and please join us if you haven't already. If you have joined us, thank you so much. I can update us. Uh, we are uh, more than three quarters of the way to our goal already. We're at about $16,000 when I checked it. Uh, this afternoon. So thank you so much for all who have participated. And we had Annabelle here for the last couple oh, of days who heads baby. up Remnant. Man, we had a good time yesterday. We, she was sitting right there in that seat. Oh, um, I had a good time around our dinner table. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that lady. Oh, man. <laughs> She's something. Who she is. She is a disciple. Jesus said, come follow me, Annabelle. She said, I'm in. She was in. Man. Uh, check out that video. It's on our YouTube channel as well. Um, but not yet. Stay here for this. Uh, <laughs> all right. So let me start with this. You said, and I'm just going to look at my notes here because I, I, I'm going to ask questions, I think, just kind of in the order they came to me as you were teaching today. But um, you said Jesus wasn't looking for conflict. Uh, and then you admonished us, like, we don't need to go looking for conflict, creating conflict. And you, you touched on, you know, by demanding our rights is one of those ways that we can go looking for conflict. But yeah. When is it okay not to shy away from conflict? Because, you know, there were times in Jesus' ministry where certainly he just kind of wades into it and rolls up his sleeves and says, okay, Pharisees, let's let's have a go. <laughs> yeah. um, John Christostom said, uh, don't look for it, but if you, he said, inadvertently, hmm. if inadvertently one finds himself in conflict, don't shy away. Okay. So uh, I think that... We kind of tend to either be a fight or flight, yeah. and we need the third way, which is just to be calm, be meek, be humble, mm -hmm. but not be swayed from the truth. Indeed. Um, I, I think about Annabelle, in fact, who, you know, she's facing conflict on a regular basis in Kampala as she fights for justice for these, these young girls who have suffered at the hands of an abuser. It certainly wouldn't make sense to shy away from conflict in that regard. We we need to seek no. justice on behalf of others, no. yeah? But I think that um, perhaps in our context, of course we need to seek justice. But I think perhaps, to be honest, mm -hmm. uh, in our current 21st century um, Western context, yeah. I think we have too many people or too many even churches but or individual believers that are expressing difficult situations. They're they're provoking. They're provoking. Yeah. And frankly, they're provoking over issues that uh as you and I know, our overseas families would just laugh at. Indeed. What are you talking about? <laughs> just in terms of where it whether lines you can up wear a mask list, or not yeah. wear a mask. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. How about whether you can shoot me or not? Yeah. Be- and I shouldn't joke at that. Yeah. I shouldn't. That was bad taste. But we have that reality yes. that we have people, uh, you and I both work with people mm-hmm. who uh, within their teams, yeah. they face life and death. Yeah. yeah. Um, repentance. I'm going to try and do kind of lightning round here stuff. You, you talked about repentance and kind of filled in the blank in terms of what Matthew's getting at when he talks about repent and believe. Can you tell us just a little bit about how you approach repentance when you're when you're preaching the gospel, when you're just spending time with the unchurched? I'm thinking probably specifically in these communities that we go to in the in the developing world that have not heard the gospel before. Mm-hmm. Um do you use the word repent or repentance um, and just kind of rely on your translator to figure out the best word for that? What's your approach? On, That's a great on question. I don't know. It just kind of <laughs> comes out of me. Yeah. Uh, the biggest emphasis I make is um, is on the turning around and facing Jesus. Yeah. You know, that's my biggest emphasis. We 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 turn and we face the one that's always been there. Hmm. Uh, we're not saying please come. Yeah. He's always been there, and it's that change of thinking, change of life mm-hmm. that is in response to that. But whether I use the word repent or not, I actually couldn't tell you. <laughs> but I believe in repentance. Just Indeed. for anybody who's going to write in and say, you know, he's lost the gospel. No, I no. haven't. I believe in repentance. When you're talking about turning. You must give some kind of probably more off the cuff than anything, and depending on cultural context. But you talk, you must talk about some things as examples of what they should be Absolutely. turning from. Can yep. you give us a couple? Yeah. Well, one of the one of the the context for that is is you know my go to for fifteen years is John ten ten, mm-hmm. and I have times where I physically I don't plan on it, but sometimes I'll just do it. Uh, I'll physically have people stand and we face that direction. You know, 500, 600, 800 people are facing, because I've talked about the thief. I've yeah. talked about, and I talk about the, you know, the, the, the sin. I talk about the, the divisiveness, the conflict, the whatever your list is. But, but I talk about, but Jesus has come to bring abundant life. Have you had enough of that? Have you had enough of the thief? Mm-hmm. Are you willing to... Turn away and say yes to Jesus and let him, his reality that's always been there, now lean into that reality. And I will have 800 people, they'll do 180 turn hmm. physically. Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, you said the kingdom is not something that we believe in. It is something to be lived out. Yep. Uh, and then you said that's that's really countercultural for our time. Yep. I want you to just put some meat on those bones if you can. Uh, are you... When you say this is countercultural, that our our the kingdom is something that has to be lived out, are you combating this? The it's almost like society demands that we have a private faith. Like, hey, keep that to yourself. Yep. Is that what you're getting at? Mm, no, more than that. Okay. That uh, we we must disciple people, right? You yeah. and I both agree. Mm-hmm. Discipleship's at the core of our mission, ultimate our ultimate mission. Yeah. And um, and discipling is not Hellenistic, which is uh, what you think about, what you believe conceptually okay. is what you believe, but rather uh, much more of a, 
again, I'm using terms that are a little bit too crude to talk about Greek versus Hebrew, but but there's an emphasis that says what you believe is what what you live, what you do. Mm. And so what we've done with this Greek thinking is, and you've heard me say this for years, is we've turned it into ideas and concepts and memory verses. Yeah. And if you do all this, then you are growing in God. And I don't see that, especially in Matthew. I say if you learn to follow, and he teaches us how to follow, we're going to get there, right? Yeah. Matthew 5 to 7 and, and elsewhere, there's, there's five teaching discourses. But it's when you apply that classic end of the Sermon of the Mount, the one who hears my words and says, those are good concepts. <laughs> yeah. That was a great course I took. Mm. I loved that course. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to take it again. We are building our lives on the sand of self-delusion. Yeah. The one who hears my words, same words, puts them into practice. That's what I'm talking about. Not theoretical. We don't need more courses. We don't need more. We just need to do it. To to follow Jesus means to follow Jesus, not to sing songs about following him, not to go to prayer meetings about following mm-hmm. him. To follow Jesus, I take your children, my grandchildren, into the International District, what yeah. used to be called the war zone. We're going to follow Jesus by giving people food and praying for people. We're going to follow Jesus by going under the bridges by the interstate. Yeah. That is discipleship. You know, the the third book that I wrote, mm-hmm. The First Church Restored, I really emphasized discipleship. I developed some of the things I touched on today, including what it means to follow him. Uh, you can tell I get exercised on yeah. this because I've been a pastor since the early 80s, and I I cannot help but see the gap that is all too apparent in too many situations, the gap between what we say and what we do, yeah. and we just keep saying. Hmm. You've answered the next question I was going to ask already, um, but I'll, I'll ask it again so that somebody who needs to hear it can. Uh, what I was going to say was, if, when you were talking about following, you gave an example of moving your family across mm-hmm. the country twice and then and then moving again to a new country. Um, and, don't, and don't forget Crest in that first move. Indeed. <laughs> um, the, that's that may sound overwhelming to some. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they may say, "Well, how do I know what to follow? What's God calling me to?" You know, if somebody's listening to this, and not even that they'd be scared to move across the country, they just don't know whether or not they're supposed to move across the country, or sort of a thing. Where do they start? Where where can people start in a real practical sense with just tomorrow following okay. Jesus? One of the points I said, and maybe should have emphasized it more. It may require a geographical move. Mm-hmm. But it always requires leaving what you're comfortable with, mm-hmm. uh, what you feel competent in, yeah. what you feel secure in, leaving that and going into the insecurity. Yeah. Let's break it down something small. You, uh, you go out with a couple of friends under the bridges mm-hmm. and give out food and sit and talk with a very counterculture. You are stepping out of your comfort zone, yeah. your confidence, and your security. Mm-hmm. That's where it goes. God didn't call me to the nations. First, he called me to flop houses and alleyways and yeah. bridges. Now, I'm not saying that's the only call, right. but a call 
that is all I know is, son, we've got we've got people in the gospels who he calls and they say, I'm gonna come soon. Let me just get this sorted and that sorted. Yeah. You know, my uh what do they call them? 401? The 401k, yeah. 401. I got it. My, get my 401k. I, which, and I'm not joking. I hear this all the time. The soon we never hear from again. Yeah. It's the ones who make that step. And I frankly think that, that um, I think that if, if we were really willing to listen, yeah. he would quickly teach us to go from whatever puts us out of our comfort and confidence and security. And we would be getting on boats and airplanes yeah. and going and rescuing lives. Yeah. But I'm not saying that's the only way to follow mm-hmm. him. Good. Um, I got time for one more. Th- this concept of usefulness versus success mm-hmm. caught me by surprise a little bit. I mm. And I, I need to spend more time contemplating it, I think. But if I'm useful, won't I be successful? Like, by what the, standard? I guess that's you just answered the question, or are you with another question? But yeah. uh, you know, what is the dividing line between those two? It's uh, useful to the purposes of God, hmm. and therefore trusting. You see, He said, "My sheep hear My voice." Hmm. There's that wonderful promise. Yeah. If you're leaning into Him and not straining and striving. He'll speak to you. And um, and so, yeah, so that really is my answer. So how do I change my prayer life? How do I change my goals to shift away from seeking success, even if it's success by what I might assume uh, kingdom standards are in terms of uh, I want to build my ministry, get more people saved, whatever it is. Uh, how do I shift my prayer life and my goal setting from success by my standards to usefulness by kingdom standards? I think um, we're back to letting him take you out of those three mm-hmm. standards. Look at the example of Jesus in today's passage. He left... Uh, you know, he, he left Dallas or Colorado Springs or whatever the latest is, right? And and he 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 left where one would launch a ministry. Yeah. So if God's calling you, um uh, if he's calling you to something that's quite a surprise, there's a pretty good chance it's him. Now that's mm-hmm. why we also need fellowship with one another. Yeah, you and absolutely. I have talked about that yeah. before. But but sometimes it's a total shock. I'm driving up I-75 with my family after a vacation, and out of the blue, the Lord says, I want you to go to Russia and plant a church. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, so I think that that's part of it. I also think that I'd like to say this. Yeah. I was meeting with a group of businessmen in, in Florida a week or two ago, and one of the things I said to them about, about calling, I said, you're... The thing you think about, your desire, really will point you toward your destiny. I mean your desire in God, not your desire to get a, a new Tesla. Yeah. And with that comes, with the anointing, with that desire, with that um, assignment, hmm. comes favor. And it just comes favor. Yeah. 
So you and I know with this ministry, we know what it is to be in the rhythm of the kingdom. We know what it is when suddenly one thing leads to another, to another, and we never saw it coming. And we also know what it is, we're we're pretty sure this was a good thing and it just didn't go. So we say, okay, Lord, because we're always learning. Sure. Um, I, I just would so much say following is the key to being a disciple. And it's it's a key that sadly is is in too much limited supply. Yeah. Um, because you know they went into these guys, these fishermen. It was a pretty good trade. They left being fishermen, and they have changed the world. Indeed, forever. Yeah. Um, you know, the last thing I wanted to say is when you get this sense of assignment, when you get this, oh, the God, this is what you're stirring in my heart, mm-hmm. the enemy will always offer you a trade. I don't remember whether I said that a few weeks ago or whether I said it when I was in Florida, but he will always offer you a trade. You feel stirred. Man, I know God's calling me to do this in my city. And suddenly your boss comes to you and says, you know what? You got a promotion. It means being transferred to St. Louis. What is that? I'm telling you it's a trade. Wow. The enemy will always offer you a trade. Yeah. Mm. Watch out for the trade. Thank you so much. So I also would like to just encourage people, if you want to get more, get the third book. Yeah. Uh, First Church Restored. If you head to impactnations.com slash shop, uh, you'll find all of uh, your titles there. But uh, First Church Restored is the one that was referenced today. So. Uh, Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Uh, and we will see you again. For those who uh, have perhaps forgotten, let me remind you, we are broadcasting live on YouTube Live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. Uh, that is, of course, available on YouTube after the fact as well. Uh, and uh, we also have it available as an audio podcast. So if you're uh, wanting to listen during your commute or whatever, you can, uh, of course, subscribe uh, at impactnations.com slash podcast. We've got all the buttons there for your favorite podcast uh, apps. Just click subscribe there and you can get it. Uh, and we would love to have you join live. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can write to podcast at impactnations.com if you have any questions you'd like us to follow up with uh, on the podcast. We can discuss that right here in this space. Uh, and otherwise, We will see you again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. Yes, we will. God bless you. Have a good week.